From CGRU in Toronto, you're listening to Built to Play. I'm Ramnik Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. Today, Dan, we're going to talk about a letter and why that letter stands out. So in April 2018, two French news outlets received a package, and it contained a legal document, 38 pages long, stamped, signed, and it did something unprecedented. The letter was from Quantic Dream, a pretty famous game development studio in Paris. We discovered that the company was suing us almost three months after that we, we wrote the article. They had warned us. They, they told us that if we, if we did publish the, the piece, they would and they, they were willing to, to sue us. Did you believe them at the time? Yeah, I did believe them. But as a matter of fact, we are quite surprised. That's Dan Israel. He's a Paris-based journalist with the investigative news outlet Mediapart. And back in January, he'd written an article in cooperation with Canard PC, a French gaming magazine. Together, they reported on alleged incidents of sexual misconduct at Quantic Dream. According to their reporting, the company also previously broke labor laws around short-term contracts. More broadly, they described a workplace where employees worked 60 to 80 hours a week and where some employees were haunted by a disturbing collection of photoshopped images. And then, after all of that, Quantic Dream did something that, as far as I can tell, no other game developer has done before. They sued Mediapart and another news outlet, Le Monde, for defamation. What do you think their their motivation here is to sue you? Uh, it's a good question. Maybe they need to explain to other journalists that they are suing us when uh, the new game is, is being launched. It's obviously a big time for Quantic Dream. Maybe they need to, to say, hey, look, those people said a lot of bad things about us, but they're just not the truth. Maybe they just need to, to explain this to be a little bit more comfortable with what we wrote. I don't know. It's, a, it's an idea. We're talking about the release of Detroit Become Human, right? Correct. As of recording time, that game has been unshelved for about a week and a half. And according to one of their CEOs, it's the most successful game they've ever produced. And we'll get into that. But first, Dan, what do you know about Quantic Dream? Quantic Dream is, is a studio that has been kind of focused on building, shall we call them, interactive movie games over the last couple of years. Kind of games driven by dialogue choices rather than action moments. I think their last two games were, uh, oh goodness, Beyond Two Souls and then before that, Heavy Rain. And uh, neither of those games were very good. I mean, I think they got like good reception at the time, but you're right. They like those are common themes. Like it's like very story heavy, and they usually get like, especially those last two games. I mean, beyond less so, but they get like some amount of prestige by the fact that they have a lot of money and they're doing something unusual, which is making sure of a story is first. Narrative based games with incredible graphics tend to splash well at the beginning, but perhaps don't hold up as well in the long term. Now, I don't know a ton myself. I mean, here's like the basics. In 1997, David de Grutola founded the company. Hopefully I said his name right. Anyway, he's better known as game director David Cage for a reason. And so far, Quantic Dream has released five games, all of which are known for their specific style. That's kind of it in terms of my knowledge. So I talked to someone who's been following them for years. I am a reporter for the French magazine and I write under the pen name of Maria Kalash. So Quantic Dream is pretty much known by a lot of people in France. So Heavy Rain has been a hit. It's very famous. Same goes for Fahrenheit and Beyond Two Souls. And people, even those who don't play video game as a, as a main hobby, they usually have heard 
from the studio. Uh, David Cage is very famous. And I was going to say his sidekick, Guillaume de Fondomière, the other half of the top management. He was for a very long time the president of a French video games lobby. So he has quite a lot of connections in the politics and in the media world. They are very known. For as long as I have talked with French video game developers, I've heard lots of uh, very, very sad and uh, terrible stories. I think within the industry, they do not have a great reputation as an employer. So back in September 2017, Canard Pese and Mediapart decided to work together to write a series of articles about the gaming industry, specifically about the workplace. That's how Dan Israel, who we heard at the top of the show, and Maria started working together. Meanwhile, about a 20-minute drive away at the offices of France's biggest newspaper, Le Monde, another reporter, William Oduro, was working on a story about how the Me Too movement had hit video games. We're talking about an industry where 75% of the workforce is male. So he wanted to know how women are being treated and if they were fighting back against harassment. So both teams were looking for a specific example in France. And whether it was about labor laws or about a harassment, one name kept coming up. We heard about Cantibrim quite a lot, and he working on the sexism and harassment in the video games industry, he heard about Cantibrim a lot. I mean, w- what makes Cantibrim really interesting is, is that it has pretty much every issue of the video game, of the French video game industry at least. A quick disclaimer before we go through all this. All of the sources for these stories that we're going to be talking about are anonymous. For good reason. France is a relatively small gaming industry at roughly 6,000 people overall. So everyone knows each other. And if you complain, employees fear that it'll get around fast and prevent them from getting future work. So their names and any identifying information have been hidden by the original reporters. And one other thing, we actually contacted Quantic Dream and Sony to comment on this story, and they didn't get back to us. With that out of the way, one of the first things they found were these images being sent around the company on a group email. Someone would send photoshopped images of employees' heads on other people's bodies, and while it might have started as a joke, it uh, pretty quickly got out of hand. The author of the pictures, he did those during his lunch breaks on the company computer. As far as we gathered, it started as a joke with the guys of his department, like, we're buddies and we laugh, haha. After a while, he broadened uh, the cast to other people in the company, so it includes the top management. Probably everyone in the company at some point was photoshopped in such a way. So the least offensive of these images are childish. Um, but some of them, I mean, Dan, you should probably take a look at these. Canarpa say published a collection of these back in January. And just a warning, they are pretty graphic. Um, could you describe what you're seeing here? A lot more nudity than I think, or I guess that you would that you would probably expect here. A lot of photoshopping into clearly pornographic images, uh, photoshopping men's faces onto, you know, sort of female identified bodies onto the bodies of Nazis. There seems to be a dildo in one of these. Generally, these are pretty gross. I must insist, though, that not all of them 
are that graphic. Some are really terrible. Some could be seen as a joke. So, I mean, so, some are not that insulting. It's not to defend them, uh, but just to make things clear. Quantic Dream is 83% male, so a lot of these photos are of men. But then there are women who have been photoshopped into images of porn stars. But even if they're not starring women, there's often sexist language in the images themselves. So like one has this sign in the background that says, all women are born equal, but the best become accountants, which seems fine. But then the author has crossed out the word accountant and scrawled in. When when you first saw some of the images that were being shared, what was your reaction? I think I was in complete disbelief. David Cage has always spoke of his work as something very arty. Uh, you know, he has uh, intellectual ambitions. And so thinking that in his company, it was okay to do that kind of thing without thinking twice whether, I mean, there are something like between 150 person and 200 persons working there. There are people uh, who are overweight. There are people who are homosexual. There are, there are women. And so not thinking twice whether that kind of stuff might uh, put your employee in a very uncomfortable situation. When you think that you are uh, making, promoting games as something clever and intellectual, it was very surprising, to say the least. So how many of these photos were there, actually? They found um, about 600. Uh, did no one complain to upper, man to upper management that at very least some of these photos were fairly insulting? As far as we know, no one has come forward to, to the buses. Sometimes people would uh, go to the author of the pictures and tell them, I'm sorry, I don't want to be in your, <laughs> in your little art gallery. And reportedly, they, the author would stop uh, making jokes about the people. It took until the author decided to depict the IT manager in one of these pastiches for someone to file a complaint. Apparently, the manager wasn't letting them play video games at work. But then he found the share folder on the company's server and sent it to upper management. But the folder was widely accessible, right? So shouldn't have David Cage and Guillaume de Fondemier already known about it? They say they were aware of the images, but only the ones that were, quote, funny or more or less comical, unquote. The photos apparently stopped appearing not long after that. Right. But it's good that you brought up those two because everything from here on in hinges on them. Let's get Guillaume out of the way. Um, the Le Monde report says that Guillaume flirted with his employees at parties. The article describes him inappropriately kissing women um, as he greeted them. He also apparently encouraged them to drink from his beer bottle at parties. He has repeatedly denied these allegations and released a statement about workplace harassment. Quote, inappropriate conduct or practices have no place at Quantic Dream. We have taken and will always take such grievances very seriously, unquote. There's also this other thing that no one seems to really understand, and it's where we start to get into the labor issues. In 2016, David Cage fires Guillaume, his second-in-command, for a long-term grievance. The company gave Guillaume a settlement of about 100,000 euros. That's more than $150,000 Canadian. And then two days later, they hired him back with a slight pay raise which he reinvests in the company anyway. When we asked him, 
about this transaction. He told us it is none of your business and it is totally legal. So uh, I'm not going to argue on that. It's just weird. The lawsuit against Mediapart identifies this as defamatory, but both Dan and Maria say they can confirm that it happened. What it does show is a past willingness to be creative when it comes to their contracts, because they did something really similar with many of their long-term employees. They'd invent a grievance, some kind of long-term personal issue, like let's say the employee was rude or negligent at work, and then the company would fire them. Meanwhile, with contract employees, Mediapart and Canard Pesce found evidence that Quantic Dream routinely rewrote start and end dates. The goal was to keep employees on contracts instead of hiring them long term. That way, when their role in a game's development ended, let's say with Detroit Become Human, they can easily be laid off. No, wait, isn't that actually kind of common? Not not the backdating or the sudden firing, but getting rid of employees at the end of a development cycle. Every major studio does that, at least in North America. I think you're right, and I think that's like pretty universal. This is actually a pretty common cycle in the gaming industry of bulking up a studio when it is deep in production and then slimming down to a core team of members. But that practice bumps up against France's fairly strict labor laws, which David Cage and Guillaume dufont should have been aware of. Here's Dan Israel again. It's not very easy when you follow basic labor laws. It's not very easy to to have one day 50 employees, the next one 250, and then you have to let go 200 people. It's not quite easy. You, you cannot do it that, that way, except if you, if you are using short-term contracts, but there are a lot of rules to follow. So we think that the gaming industry, and in particular Country Dreams, has quite a lot of difficulty to follow this rule all. Maybe they have decided that it would be easier to do it their own way. I'm not saying that Quantic Dream breaks the law all the time. It is not, it is not that. What, what we found is it's more, generally speaking, the boundaries or the rules are not very important in their mind. It was quite, quite clear to us. As far as you're aware, um, since that report in January, has there been any change to how Quantic Dream has operated in terms of those rules? What, what we wrote was that at, at some times, or for some, some people, the rules were not followed. We don't know and we didn't write that they did it this way all the time. Kind of, it's kind of difficult for us to know exactly how it's going today. Uh, we didn't even write that, uh, as a matter of fact, Quantum Dreams does break the law all the time when it comes to dealing with these employees. We don't know that. Just to add here that Quantic Dream's lawsuit against Mediapart says that these comments are defamatory and untrue. Okay, we've talked harassment. We've talked about Guillaume. We've even covered French law. So let's talk about David Cage. He is the director and lead writer and face of the studio. So what's his role in this mess? So according to reports, David Cage is known by employees as the Sun King, Louis XIV style. He's also been called God. Of course he is. I think it's meant to be ironic. Um, But, okay, let's go through a couple things very quickly. Um, Cage has been accused of making racist, sexist, and homophobic comments by French news outlets, specifically, again, Le Monde, Mediapart, and Canard Pesce. We don't have time to go into them. What Cage is really known for is his work ethic. Cage is heavily involved in development and takes on a lot of the work himself. However, he's been criticized for his inability to delegate 
and he'll sometimes make last-minute changes. So during Detroit's development, they've actually tried to anticipate that in a way I find totally fascinating. Before uh, developing the game, there is no storyboard or something like that. And so they have an idea. They, David Cage has written a whole script of what is going on in the game, but they do not know, for instance, where the camera will be in the scene. Since he wants the complete freedom, they filmed 30,000 animations, meaning that uh, for each character, you can place the camera wherever you want around the character, okay? 360 degrees and the feet and the hands and the nails and everything, okay? And so they refined perfectly all 30,000 animations to use only 15,000. So there is a huge amount of work being done at Quantic Dream, which serves no purpose or no other purpose than uh, letting uh, David Cage decide at the very, very end of the process whether he's going to use that or not. So the problem is they're essentially leaving an entire video game on the cutting room floor. you got to imagine, they're only using half of the things that they made. Then, if Cage didn't like your work in particular, he's alleged to actually go up to people and just straight up tell them their work was <laughs> Again, Quantic Dream's lawsuit calls these allegations defamatory and untrue. According to Canard Pesce, these are people who are staying up 60 to 80 hours to keep up with Cage, to an extent. Cage says he's never asked these people to stay around that long. And De Fondumer noted that employees get paid overtime if they do stay late or are asked to stay late. But as one former employee explained, quote, they put pressure on you to stay longer and give you a bad look if you're only working normal hours. At the same time, I often do not have anything to do. People will be less productive to stay late, with the idea that staying late meant being invested in the project, unquote. And then the crazy thing is that once you have these people working late, it feeds into all the other issues we've already discussed. When you work too much in an environment where there are mostly men and you don't dare to step up and fight for your rights, um, you, you spend every day at work, maybe 10 or 12 hours a day, you don't have a life of your own, you have to vent and you have to find things to relax. And so that's when you start to do uh, photoshops of your co-workers without thinking twice whether it might offend some of them. You make bad decisions and the thing is you make those bad decisions at work. This is a lot. Yeah, so there's so many parts of this that it's kind of hard to fit together, but I think that's actually a pretty good summary of it. But that's essentially what Le Monde and Mediapart are being sued for. Their first hearing is on June 14th, which is right in the middle of the big gaming conference, E3, and the actual trial date will be set later. So what is Quantic Dream asking for? So looking at the suit, it asks for 10,000 euros each to Quantic Dream, to David Cage, and to Guillaume de Fondemer. They want the article to be taken down and for a retraction notice to go up instead. They even specify what spot font the retraction notice needs to be in. In France, uh, the journalists have to, to explain why the issue was an important one. As for how they feel about their reporting, I'll let Dan Israel answer that. Then... We have to show that we did our job well, that we asked questions, that we waited for the answers, and that we have basic facts that prove that what we wrote 
okay, all these elements are, are okay for us. Of course, we did all this. So if we if we do that, we cannot be condemned. We cannot lose a trial. So I'm quite confident about it. By the way, I've talked to William Odero over at Le Monde and Maria, who have been hearing throughout the show, and they're of pretty much the same mind. All of this seems far too specific to not be real. And David Cage seems to, in his reaction of denying it so wholeheartedly, really made it seem like he is the kind of person who could be doing these things. These images don't seem to be coming out of nowhere. And given David Cage seems to have a reputation for micromanaging and overmanaging people, uh, it seems unlikely that he wouldn't know about them, particularly if everybody's staying 80 hours a night, including himself. I don't know. This this all seems to track pretty well, especially given some of the content in David Cage's games themselves. So one of the reasons this lawsuit exists in the first place is I don't think Quantic Dream or any game company really is prepared to answer those questions or clarify the points you just made. They don't really have the experience dealing with journalists in this way. Remember, Dan Israel works for Mediapart, which is an investigative news outlet. People in this industry are more, are more used to have uh, good or bad reviews about their games, but not at all about how they do it. It was quite a big surprise for us. It was almost as if they had never had any question at all about how they do this. Usually, we deal with big companies that are used to dealing with journalists. At this time, for, for this story, they were not at all used to, to speak to journalists. They didn't know how we worked. They didn't understand. They accused us of being disloyal because we were asking questions, not only questions to the leaders of the company, but also to the employees. They were really, really, really upset about this. So one thing that... I immediately became curious about is like you have all these conditions. You have like this this environment in your workplace that is toxic, that is uninviting. And that I have to assume it has an effect on the game that you make, right? Like you're putting all of these people in this very specific circumstance and you have this guy leading the company. And as much as David Cage likes to take ownership of their games, development is a team sport. Everyone's running the same race here. And they're a studio of nearly 200 people. How he runs it is going to have an impact on Detroit Become Human. Actually, there's a great quote that Cage gave to Lamont. Quote, You want to talk about homophobia? We work with Ellen Page, who fights for LGBT rights. You want to talk about racism? We work with Jesse Williams, who fights for civil rights in the U.S. Judge my work. But we can do that. Or better, Jess Joho did do that. She's an entertainment reporter over at Mashable who reviewed Detroit Become Human. As best as you can describe it, what is Detroit Become Human about? Oh, geez. Uh, it, I think Detroit Become Human isn't entirely sure itself what it's about. Um, it uh, wants to be an allegory for um, oppression in the real world, um, pretty explicitly so. Uh, you know, David Cage, who is you know, the actor behind this and the entire studio, has waffled on, you know, well, he wants this to be meaningful and speak to real world issues, but also it's not, you know, about racism and it's not about Detroit's history with racism, but, you know, still it, it, it's purposefully making allusions to that. So it's a very confused story. Detroit has a very, I saw this oppression on the news type vibe based on what she's describing. Like Cage has heard oppression exists but doesn't exactly know what to do with that fact. There's an early scene where 
Marcus, the character who is basically an abolitionist for androids eventually. He leads the revolution and he's played by racial actor Jesse Williams. And he is caught up in this protest that's very much um, using the language of xenophobia towards Mexican immigrants in America. You know, like these androids took our jobs and they're stealing our jobs. And it's very much recalling to that. Uh, invoking that kind of xenophobia in America. But with that metaphor kind of uh, misappropriates is the idea that um, it's, it's kind of reasserting this idea that Mexican immigrants in America are quote unquote stealing or taking white American jobs and taking our economy when by all accounts and reports, uh, you know, most recently NPR did uh, a great um, exploration of this, of seeing whether that's true whether it is bad for the economy, whether, you know, immigrants are taking um, people's jobs. And, you know, it's really not clear at all. Um, if anything, immigrants are the backbone of our economy. Um, and a lot of the times they're taking jobs that white Americans don't want. At the same time that it wants to borrow the language of that kind of oppression, it is reinforcing really problematic and dangerous views and assumptions that go in line with the oppressors. It's one of the examples that, that slightly horrified me was the the one that you pointed to, which is Marcus deactivates his skin color before delivering the big Martin Luther King Jr. I have an Android uh, speech. Like that they're uh, Demanding yeah. equality for his people. We demand the end of slavery for all androids. We demand strictly equal rights for humans and androids. We demand the right to vote and elect our own representatives. We demand an end to segregation in all public places and transport. And he becomes white in that instance? So, yeah, I mean, I, would, I will qualify that it's not like he says, well, I'm going to deactivate my skin color. You can make assumptions as to why he would do this, maybe to mask his identity so that he's not a target, but at the same time, that's not how it really shakes down in the story. But yes, he like the just the optics of somebody who is biracial and the idea that they could just turn off their skin color, um, and that's not at all questioned before he gives this speech about demanding equality and an end to slavery um, and the right to, to own property uh, is basically summarizes the problem with Detroit become human. I mean, it, it definitely sounds like David Cage is a white European dude writing about American racism and oppression, and he is deeply ill-equipped for that. The fascinating thing is that this is just race. Like, we're just talking about one segment of this uh, elaborate tapestry. There's also gender, where um, Quantic Dream has a long history of including scenes where women get abused or sexually attacked without much consequence for any of the protagonists. Like, here's one example. In Indigo Prophecy, um, also known as Fahrenheit, there's a upskirt shot in the middle of a rape scene. By those standards, Detroit might be considered a marginal improvement. Basically, what a lot of um, interviews with David Cage has shown, uh, because there was a lot of controversy over his use of domestic abuse, and this interview, this kind of infamous Eurogamer interview, 
he just keeps talking about how he was interested in domestic abuse because it makes a player feel something. Now, exactly what that something is, he doesn't really specify or seem very interested in. What to me, his answers and his approach to the topic feel like is that he is using women's pain, and particularly in this case, domestic abuse, uh, as a way to evoke emotion in uh, players who are going to be predominantly male, let's not forget. And, you know, it's weird because he puts that emotional baggage uh, on their female characters. Connor, you know, the detective, can have these just these fun kind of playful uh, story. But, you know, the women have to represent victimized people. They have to, you know, there's another scene um, where two android sex workers, female sex workers, um, have, and I don't know if we can spoil, but they've fallen in love. It's basically presented as Connor, an empathy test for Connor, whether he wants to shoot them or not. When that man broke the other Tracy, I knew I was next. I was so scared. I begged him to stop, but he wouldn't. And the consequences for shooting them are pretty oblique and and not very clear. Um, You know, your partner, Hank, uh, likes you a little less. Um, All things you can kind of make up in your relationship later. Uh, There's really no consequence that I could see to killing them. After going through some of these concerns, I asked Jess to reverse engineer the game back to its creators. You've seen how it depicts race, how it depicts gender. Who would you imagine made Detroit become human? From Literally from the opening menu screen, I could tell you that this was a game made entirely, almost entirely by men. And the worldview very clearly is informed by a male perspective. For instance, just in the background noise of of the t- things on TV, the things that you can read in articles, they're all things that are very exclusively male. And then the one kind of article that is trying to be in the voice or perspective of a woman is this kind of Gossip Weekly, I think it's called. The headline reads like, sorry, ladies, um, men say android sex is better. <laughs> and just the idea, and, and then it proceeds to like be this kind of gossipy column, I don't know, expose on, on how men prefer android sex, completely negating the idea that women probably would be interested in men and male android sex. And why aren't the men worried about that either? So everything about the world, including the fact that you have a main menu lady robot who kind of caters the game to your uh, to your needs, calibrates what language you want, uh, you know, the brightness of your screen. And every time you return to her, there's kind of this flirtatiousness that to me implies that the game thinks I am probably a man. And while I am a white person, I could very much pick up on the lack of understanding of race, uh, how it works, and what it feels like in the world, and what that experience is. Now, Jess says the game can be enjoyable. It flows better and plays better than any other Quantic Dream game. So I wouldn't say it's a total failure. It's not. And I mean, regardless of what we 
have to say about it, the game does appear to be a financial success. I don't know if that makes the game a success. This is a question I think we ask a lot when we do stories about the workplace and crunch more broadly, but I think we need to ask it more often. How much do our games really cost? Sure, you buy them for $60, $70, $80 at the counter, but is it also worth the people going home at midnight? Is a game worth opening your inbox to find a picture of your face on a porn star? Is it worth every euro spent on legal fees between Quantic Dream, Le Monde, and Mediapart? And ultimately, is it worth a fun but cringeworthy game that has nothing to say? Clearly people have made that decision, and I don't want to act like I have the answers here, because I don't, I really don't. If the show has proved anything, is that I know nothing. But thinking about this case makes me really sad, especially when you think that aside from the lawsuit, aside from that letter, nothing about this scenario is really all that unprecedented. After the article, we received more testimonies uh, confirming what we had written. And so I think among the employees, there is some hope that it might help uh, sort that kind of issues out because they haven't been able to do it so far. Special thanks to Dan Israel, William Odero, and Jess Joho. They gave us a lot of their time, and this project wouldn't have been possible without them. And of course, thanks to Maria Kalash, who answered my emails months after our interview and was still a great help. You'll have links to all of the stuff that we referenced in this piece in our show notes. Also, most of this music from this episode comes from Tumelo, who I just discovered has a bunch of music on his Bandcamp page that technically counted as share-alike and attribution-only, which means I used a bunch of it in this episode. Thank you so much to Tumelo. From CGRU, this has been Built to Play. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. You can follow us on Twitter at Built to Play or visit our website, builttoplay.ca. You can follow us on Facebook. But hey, if you really like the show, be sure to tell a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. Or you can send an email at builtplayshow at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Flarkon. That's F-L-A-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, don't play David Cage games.